is that without Christ, we have no hope. And Jesus broke into human history and gave hope. He gave redemption of the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. Thank you for being here this morning. We are continuing in our series. Our series is entitled Grow, the growth of what God is doing in our hearts and lives of a believer and how we should grow. And so we've looked at this and we've noticed that the goal of growth is Christ-likeness. The goal of growth is Christ-likeness. And so as we do so, we're going to take our next step. And these are not necessarily in chronological order of growth, but our next step here to see what God has for us. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, by your great work on the cross, our Savior, we have redemption from sin. So, Father, as we come before you, may our hearts be brought low. Not in weakness, but in humility. Acknowledging the great price that was paid for our sin debt. And Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that today, by your mercy and by your grace, you would give us understanding. Father, help. may we look into your word and may we see who you are. And Father, as we look into your word, we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would do a great work. You give us understanding. And through that understanding, we might have the will given to, you, given to us by you to be obedient. In obedience, may we glorify you. It's in Christ and I pray. Amen. Have you noticed how that across our world and for centuries, even thousands of years, there have been many different manifestations or revealings or showings of what people would call worship? In fact, it's uh, quite confusing and sometimes without a frame of reference, uh, some external point beyond ourselves. For some, this is worship. This type of atmosphere is worship. And for others, they would call this worship. But what is truly worship? What is it that God requires us to do? How is it that we should come to a holy God? As we come into our next characteristic of a growing believer, a believer that's entered into a relationship with Christ and growing in such a way that would give evidence to that growth, We come to our next spot, and this is Grow. We're going to talk about today this idea of worship. This idea of worship. When we have many questions, we ask, what is worship? What is it? Not what others think, not what I think, but what does the Bible portray as worship? What is it? And hopefully, this will not be anything radical or groundbreaking, but it will open our eyes and reveal to to us exactly what God has from ages past into the present revealed to us about Himself and how we should come to Him. 
So what is worship? If you start in the Old Testament, you have several things, several words that are mentioned as worship. And I'm not going to necessarily pronounce all of them, because some of them, well, I would, it wouldn't go so well. However, this one, this first one, means to bow down. And this is conceived as bowing down to a deity. And this is probably the most common word used for worship in the Old Testament. Uh, there's, a, there's 173 uses of this word, and 105 are specifically worshiping a deity. And the, the vast majority of those, those are worshiping God. There. It's interesting because this word is not always uh, spoken of and very readily. But if you think about it, you go back to Genesis 2, 22, 5. Abraham says to his young man, Young men there, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad, his son, will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And this, in that time, this is before temple, before tabernacle, this is a bowing down, a worship. Exodus 20, 25. And we understand this, you shall not worship them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Right off the bat, in, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not worship another god. You shall not bow down, show obeisance. Or you should not do that to another god. And we think of, well, you know, when, when I'm jealous, is not good. When God's jealous, it's a holy and righteous jealous, jealousy for us. Chronicles 16.29. And you'll see this in another psalm here. Uh, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy array. So you're bowing down. You're seeing throughout Scripture in the early, in the early passages, throughout the Old Testament, a, a worship that gives us the understanding that it is indeed a bowing down okay? to, a, to, a, to God Himself. There's another word that's also joined with this at time is a word specifically of bending the knee. This is not necessarily saying it's bending the knee toward a, to a deity because this word is used broadly, but it's kneeling before another. Then you have 95, 6, Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Both words, the first one and the second one. These words are, give us the, the understanding of worship. Now, when uh, 300 years before Christ, when 70 were called to, to write a Greek translation of the Old Testament, these 70 used the word here, um, uh, proskuneo, the idea to kiss the feet. And that word is often translated as that first word to bow as to a deity there in the Old Testament. So the attitude of expressing one's complete dependence on or submission to a higher authority. Now, let's look at Psalm 95, 6 and this idea. This word is used. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, our Creator. So you understand what's happening. Worship is a bowing down, a flattening oneself, or a kneeling to God. And over and over in Scripture, you see this idea of worship. It's not a tip of the hat to God. It's not saying hello, greeting, but it's a bowing down, this idea of worship. It's broadly throughout Scripture. In fact, it ends up in Revelation 15, just one passage. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy, 
For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The nations will come and worship before you. So you see, the characteristic of worship, of this word worship, is a bowing down, is a humbling oneself before God. So you see, both in the Old and the New Testament, this idea of worship is to be understood in the context of bowing of the heart and the will to God. Worship primarily is a bowing of a heart and will, and often in the Old Testament, a bowing of the whole body to God. That is indeed worship. That is what is meant by worship. And so we close the book and go home. No, because I know what you're saying. Well, what about music? What about the voice? Because worship here in the connotation, as it is used, there is no voice. It's hushed. It's humble before God. It's a bowing. It's a flattening oneself before God. What about music? What about voices? Well, that comes to the next word that's often accompanying worship, but it's the idea of praise. This idea of praise, a word that you would, you would understand and see, is a praise, is a song of praise. And as we say a song of praise to God, or lifting up praise to God, it is hallelujah. And here in Psalm 146.1, the first phrase, we have three words in our English, but that, first, that is hallelujah, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord of my soul. There, if we were thinking about how it is rendered. But this word of praise here is, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And you start to see throughout Scripture that praise has a vocal aspect. Singing, yes, often it is tied to singing. But it's also a vocal, a shouted, or a proclaimed, a speech. Speaking to one another. The idea of praise that comes that way. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and is becoming. Have you ever thought about it? this idea of praise? That God looks at it as praiseworthy. It is becoming. It is good to sing praises. Romans, Paul speaks, the Apostle Paul, as he writes, he says, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall praise me. Here echoes of other passages that Paul wrote. And so you have this in the New Testament. The epipanos is the act of expressing admiration or approval, praise and approval. Different things of this nature is used in the in the New Testament of praise. And so you come to passages like Ephesians 6, uh, 1, verse 6, to the praise of His glory, of His grace. And if you look at Ephesians, it continues down, and it, and it mentions often, um, verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. So praise is vocally transmitting the great worth of God. And is to the purpose is to bring glory to God. So the purpose of praise is to bring glory to God. Not to ourselves, not to anybody else, but to God. So now you have a, a combination of two items of worship and you have of praise coming together for God. You look at, um, at songs of praise here. Ephesians um, 
chapter 2, verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of con- congregation. I will sing your praise. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. the writer of Hebrews uses a, um, an Old Testament word, the tadah, of an offering of thanksgiving. He says, through him, that's Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. James 5, if, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. I love it when people are cheerful and they sing. Some don't sing, some whistle. Some are tuneless, some are tuneful. And that's fine, but it's the joy, it's the overflowing joy of the heart. It's commanded in Revelation. The voice in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 5, And the voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Revelations 5, 9, they sing a new song. A new song. It is worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe of tongue and people and nation. The praise to God. And so you start to have developed these two concepts throughout Scripture. One of worship. One of bowing down and kneeling. Uh, something of hushed submission. And worship is conceptualized as a bowing of heart and will to God here in our time. And praise is jubilant, it is joyful, it is shouting, it's singing. And it's conceptualized as lifting of a heart and voice to God. These two elements of how we come together. But the common thread through all of these is this, that the object of our worship, the object of our praise is God and God alone. There is no other person, no other thing that we stand in a church service, and praise. It is for God. It is for God alone. If we praise any other, our praise, our worship is not worthy. God is the object of our worship. I wonder if that is how we often see the heart, the will bowing down. Will, the, the will is the seat of our intellect. We must submit both our hearts and our will to God. You know, there's a danger. There's a danger. There's heart without head and head without heart. There's a danger in praising without understanding. And there's a danger of having plenty of understanding and never praising. And so with, generation of our, with the regeneration of our spirit, we have both a heart and mind submitting to God in praise. And so we have biblical example of what it is to praise, what it is to worship. Now, it's interesting because we have in our parlance, we have come to what many would call a worship service. Okay? And by that language, we would say that for us, we are to be bowing of heart and will to God in our service. But along with that, we also praise, don't we? We sang a few songs this morning that are just resounding of praise. Brought tears to my eyes. All I have is Christ. Our voices were lifted up in praise. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nations. I look there, the singing of the praising, but in the words, we're understanding that God is ruler.
We are to bow down before Him. So we have this concept of praise and of worship that God defines. So I guess the next question is, how, do we, how does this manifest itself in our church? How is it that we bring that into the body of Christ to be biblical in our understanding? And not just uh, overbalance to one or the other. Or, in some cases, neither. Well, let's look first at the foundations of corporate worship. What is the foundation? Because we're going to say this, the body coming together, is corporate worship. Private is when I'm by myself at home. Okay, corporate worship. Well, oddly enough, the foundation of corporate worship first is private worship. Private worship must precede. It must come first before corporate worship. How does that work? How does that work? You know, it is not possible to engage in prayer and worship of God just by flipping on a switch. Nothing magical happens when you walk through the door, okay, into a, an auditorium, to a building. There's not just like, you know, something that it's, it's in the walls and you just all of a sudden I become worshipful or pray, praiseful. It doesn't happen just because we hear a choir or a praise team or we wave a hand or we wave a hanky. Okay, it doesn't happen just because of doing something. I like how I did that. I got the, the, the old time and the new time hands and hanky. So you guys don't, probably don't remember, but you know, in the old churches, you didn't wave hands, you waved hankies. Okay? And the hankies were there because the tears came coming down because they were praising God and because they were seeing who Jesus was to them. All right? But the hankies weren't there just for, you know, with like a football game, the terrible towels or whatever it is. It was for a good, work, good reason. Tears were running down the aisles. Uh, the eyes, not the aisles. But private worship, we must privately bow down before God. See, what has to happen is six days during the week of private worship, of being with God in our, in, in, in our quiet time with Him, of, of looking at His Word, being changed by His Word, and then we come together and praising. Sometimes, have you ever seen people take a hymnal with their Bible when they go to their quiet time with God? Sometimes they will reference songs of what they're learning in Scripture, and they will sing to themselves, some quietly, some out loud, however they do it, hopefully in a private place. No. Um, but that private worship is key. Private worship is key for you and for me. And if you want to think about it this way, I am harming corporate worship when I've not been all week in private worship. I'm coming unarmed. I'm coming under malnourished. That's the word, malnourished. And so the body around me, I'm somehow supposed to fit in. If I haven't fed on God's word, I'm somehow supposed to fit in and, and do the motions and do whatever it is because I haven't been with God this week. And so I'm harming the body. Well, understand, private worship. But secondly, I want to bring this out. The corporate worship, these foundational elements, involves all of the church. Everyone. Every one of us. And that, that's important because it, it's too easy to get uh, a select few. A select few. And to understand this, all the church, understand the corporate worship is for, first of all, believers. It is for believers. It's for those who believe in Jesus. Now, I understand, I'm mindful that any given Sunday, we have people in here who are coming to be a part of our congregation who may not know Jesus, who may not fully put their faith in Jesus. And, and so, 
as we do this, I want you to appreciate who Jesus is to us. I want you to understand who He is, and I, we want to represent Him well. We want to represent Him well, but there may be some aspects of the service that is foreign to you. And we're going to try, try as much as we can to, to minimize those aspects. We're going to talk, not going to always talk in theological language. We're going to, to talk in language that I speak, and just common language. And so to understand that what's going on. But understand that, that corporate worship is for believers. And so as we come together, private worship and all the church, and we'll expound a little bit on all the church here in a second. So what are the elements of our worship? What are the elements that we, we have in our corporate worship today? First of all, is, uh, we have to understand with all believers worshiping, it's not about a select group of people. Not about people on a stage. That feeds consumerism. We do have people who come and, and lead, and that's a good thing. We're all together. Okay? We're doing it decently in order. But corporate worship is about engaging each individual person that is a believer in Christ in worship. And so we have elements such as this. We have music. We have elements of music, and we've already done that in our worship service today. And the highest goal, my highest aim, is congregational singing. Okay? I love choir. I love all these things. I love instruments. Instruments, But my highest goal is for that all of the body of believers here to sing joyfully, to sing with their whole heart and their beings, to sing out, not to be spectators. Understanding all this thing of worship, just can't let me walk over here from the side here. All, God is the judge. God is the spectator for, for corporate worship. Not us. Not you, sorry. You don't get to judge. You don't know, have a card of A or, a or B or 10.9 on my solo. Okay, I'm sorry. That's not it. Um, God is the judge for this. He is the one who's, who's observing, and it is for him, obviously, from our earlier point. And so you, not only people who may be up here leading, you are to be engaged in worship. Engage in congregational singing. Whether or not you have a good voice or not, we don't care. We don't care. We want you to sing. We may, we may not invite you to the choir, but we want you to sing. I'm kidding. We want you to sing. Do you understand how important the congregational singing is? That you and I sing with our whole hearts. Um, and as an aside, we've been adding, adding people up here from time to time. Didn't do it today. Because we want the congregation to sing. And sometimes a female voice singing along with congregation helps the female voices sing out louder. Okay? We, all this is for you to sing more. We try carefully to balance our sound so it doesn't blare you, but you get enough support to sing out and to sing joyfully unto God. This is congregational singing. So it's important. Now, why is it important? Why is music important? Well, uh, I'm not going to take a deep dive into Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3.16 because it would, it's a whole another three or four messages. But, number one, music is didactic. It is didactic. It teaches us, uh, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of God richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching one another, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Did you catch that? Admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
is didactic, it's teaching. And maybe because I started as a music director years ago, but oftentimes to communicate an idea, I often think of a hymn or a, a text of a song, a lyrics that says, this is proof. The hymn writer is taken from Scripture and, and, and just proves for me a, uh, an easier way to communicate sometimes. And so we are to be teaching, not only with Scripture, but through our songs. And that places a high degree of importance on the words that we sing. They're both theological. It's interesting. I've noticed that many of the, the newer music this, this day, in the last five years especially, have gone back to Puritan writers to pull their texts because they got, rid, they, they got tired of cheap and trite lyrics. They go back to theological texts, and I love that. I love that it's using meat for that. So teaching. And we're purposely singing here old and new. For some of you, the old is new, and some of you, the new is old. I'm not sure how that works. But we're teaching solid texts from the past. We do not ever want to lose the words. We'd say, uh, I think it was last week, we had one of the oldest songs in our hymnal, Bernard of Clairvaux, okay? So um, you, can look at, you can look it up and see how long ago it was. But you and I weren't alive. Our country wasn't alive. <laughs> um, you know, and we're also teaching solid texts of the present. That's important, to connect solid texts to the present. God is still working in today's uh, writers. Things didn't shut off after 1950, okay? If it did, we're in trouble, okay? There were serious spiritual problems if, if it did turn off then. And so we must guard against a tendency to either prefer all, either the, all of the old or all of the new. See, a balanced Christian is discerning and brings together the texts that support Scripture, that help us in learning and understanding the Word of God. And so there's a bit of deference in the body of Christ, isn't there? Because we each, some prefer old, some prefer new. And if we're seeing all the new all the time, ooh, that's boring. If we're seeing all the old all the time, okay, same. So deference. It's love in the body of Christ. Because when we gather together and we use this element of music for our praise, and music is primarily praise, we use it, we, we are together singing to God. Our private's done for the, for the week. Now we're together bringing glory to God. And so we defer one to the other in this. We love each other. And that spirit of deference needs to go both ways. We're gathered. What else do we do? How about prayer? Music, and there's prayer in worship. There's a cart cry unto God. Sometimes we are led by a person here. And a gentleman will come up and he will lead in prayer. As I had earlier, James lead for the prayer of God's blessing upon the offering for the use of that sacrifice, that giving of Prayer. And prayer is to be done. Prayer is not a spectator sport either. We are led in prayer. We are to be praying while he is praying. And sometimes we, 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 uh, we follow our themes. Praying for evangelists, praying for God to be glorified. We pray alongside with that. But it is an active part of our corporate worship. Now, we do it most of the time silently. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting where everybody's vocal, it's a little disconcerting. 
uh, there'd be 150, 200 people, and everybody's praying at once out loud. And we stopped doing that because my concentration, no, we didn't do it here. But because my concentration is not so good, we haven't, you know, introduced that. But that's what should be happening in our hearts, okay? It's not just someone leading and he's doing it for us. Prayer, communication with God, speaking to him. How about giving? Giving is an element of worship. Giving is an element of worship that is very important to us. Um, it's the act of sacrifice, and sacrifice is the element of worship. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, in the New Testament, the church sacrificing gives of itself in worship. So giving is of worship. Giving is, a, is, is involved in worship. It is, a, is an act of worship. And giving is how we express a laying down of our self-will, but also our thing, the things that God has given to us, what we think of our possessions. We lay it down and give it. And often we give it for the needs of others. The beauty of the early church is they came together and they supported those who were, were in need. It's an act of worship. And the radical giving uh, that Paul talks about is one of generosity to all. And so we have this as an element of worship. It's like, okay, i got to give money because someone's looking. No, God, in His grace and glory to us, we give as unto Him. We give. And it's part of the corporate worship that we do. What else? Well, it's what I'm doing right now. Preaching. The idea of teaching of the Word. Paul says, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. That's why I do a Scripture reading in part of our early service. Don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. But he also tells them to be in season and out. The epistle speaks of, to, to Titus and Timothy of preaching the Word. Preaching the Word. And that's the exposition of what God has said. And so we come together, and really that's a, it's a carryover from the synagogue days. Well, they sat down, they, read, they opened the scroll, they read, they, then they sat down and they taught. So we do that. We have, and preaching is a part of worship. Preaching is a part of, together we worship God as we bow to Him, to His Word. Okay, you're not bowing to me as I preach. You're bowing to the Word of God in your hearts. And be like a Berean and check it. Okay, check it from the Scriptures while I'm preaching. But preaching is an element of our worship as we come together. And we do it together. We can study on our own, can't we? And you should. That's the private worship. But coming together, joined together to hear God's Word is part of worship. We are together collectively, corporately, yielding our hearts to God. So worship is a part of our body, a part of the activity of what we do. And those are the elements. Now, we've added a few things to those on the side, but those are kind of the basic elements of what we do. And you and I are... are charged with engaging in those elements every time we come. Every time we come to church, to a quote-unquote worship service, we are to engage with all of these things. With prayer, giving, preaching, music. The voice crying out to God. You and I, that's, that's part of our responsibility. So what happens when a church, when an individual worships? What are the results? The results of worship. Because you know what? Every time I look in Scripture at an act of someone worshiping God, there's always something that happens. I'm not talking, you know, an activity like, you know, 
it rains or whatever, or, or they go to, to work the next day. Something happens to them and through their heart, they are changed through worship. See, worship and praise changes us. And worship, this bowing down, leads to certain things. And let's look at those. As we kneel before God, as we, we understand who He is, we have the result of which a life that is lived in joy, in gratitude, and in praise. See, the result of worship is for me to understand what God has done for me. And so the joy in my heart is overflowing. The gratitude is overflowing. And the praise on my lips should be overflowing. I don't have to get up here and, up from here and sing. You might, that's fine. But I speak of God's goodness. I speak of God's greatness. Why? I bow down and I acknowledge myself as humble before Him, as submitting to my heart and my will to God. And the result is joy, gratitude. The result is praise. What else? A life lived as an offering is a result of worship. A life lived as an offering. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The result and then the act, an act of worship is giving ourselves to God for use. Life lived as an offering. You don't have to come for it every Sunday and empty your pockets. It's every day. The remarkable thing that happens in the life of a believer who truly sees himself or herself as who as they are and who God is. They're called to a life that's lived as a sacrifice to God. Their priorities shift. God becomes first. Because they love God, they love others, and others become first. Life shifts in their perspective and their priorities because there is something more eternal, more grand, more glorious, more redemptive now about life because of Christ. Thirdly, life is lived as a display of the gospel of Jesus. That's the incredible thing that happens when we worship and we bow down for God, to God. We rise and our lives are to be displaying Jesus. It doesn't really happen in the lives that are not worshiping God. Because if you're not changed when you worship, if you don't exit different than you came in, there's something wrong. Something's happened Worship in its truest form of bowing down and submitting has been shortcut. And in worship, we give our lives to Jesus. Worship leads to witness. Very frankly, worship leads to witness. We witness the fact that Christ has loved us and given himself for us. So worship is transformational in our lives. We can't say that we have worshipped and leave the same way. 
You know, worship and praise has long been a passion of mine ever since God set me on a path going to college to learn uh, music, the degree in voice performance, and to be a music director in local churches here in the Greenville area. I've been studying it. I've been... Um, God's grown me in my understanding of, of worship and praise. I had to learn that the, of the didactic nature of our music. Right? Often I used to consider that just praise all went to God and it really wasn't for anybody else. It was just us and God. And, and then I got gripped by the Ephesians 5 and Colossians three sixteen that our praise is a joint effect on those around us. So we're using music using our words to edify, to build up. But what was most important in God's teaching me was the need, my need of somber worship before the great God. As well as my need for joyful expression, but generally we have that joyful expression down. We can sing and we can kind of make go through the motions, but it's the bowing down that's the hard for us because we are, okay, I'll speak for myself, a willful, prideful, stubborn person. You can fill in the blanks for yourself if you want to. But we are that, aren't we? I begin to see the genuine worship changes the believer in unalterable ways. The life lived in worship is changed. That life is holy, it is humble, it is gracious, it serves others. Why? Not because he got a good shot in the arm of of do-goodness. Because they saw, the person who worshipped saw who Jesus is, who God is. They saw themselves and they were changed. And may I say to you that if your worship isn't resulting in increasing submission to Jesus in your life, it isn't worship. Okay? It may be a lot of things. It may be praise. It may be noise. It may be a lot of things. It may be the choirs of ancient past, maybe the best pipe organ in the world, maybe the best praise team in the world. But if it doesn't change, if a life does not change to be more like Christ, it's not worship. Sorry. Every time in Scripture, worship changes the heart. Worship changes the life. Worship produces within a believer more Christ-likeness. That is indeed in worship. And, and, and God wrote through Isaiah of what we sometimes are, are, are guilty of. He said in Isaiah 29, 13, because His people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. They're saying the right things. They're singing the right things. Later on, they're even doing, they're sacrificing the right things, but their hearts are far from me. Their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. They're just phoning it in, as we would say in our day. See, we can have the right words, we can have the right songs, we can have the zippiest or the most solemn worship praise in our churches, and we can do all those things, but if our hearts are not changed, it is not worship. It's not happening, and God is not pleased. God, as we see from this, hates Lips not connected with hearts. See, worship is this. We bow in submission and worship and we rise 
in praise and service. And today, that's what happens in the life of a growing believer. Not all at once. It's progress. But it happens. We bow in submission and we worship our God and we rise in praise and service our life as an offering unto God. And that is what makes Jesus magnified, manifest, revealed before the world. When they say people, when they when they see people who don't just talk it but live it. They don't just say the words that are nice to say, but they live it out. And for you and I, if we don't live out the life that God has desired for us to live, designed for us to live, our worship is faulty. Our worship is faulty. This morning I'm not intending to to skewer your ideas of worship and praise. I'm calling this all to a biblical understanding of it. And to let you know that true worship is transformational. It changes us. See, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that happens in our hearts and lives as those who follow Christ. If we're going to name the name of Christ, if we're going to grow as believers, we're going to worship. We will bow down. Let's pray. Gracious God, by your power, by your might, might. Lord God, there is so much more through your word of understanding of you and of worship. And so I pray that in the brief time that we have had, that clarity was there and understanding. But, oh God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. And Father, for those of us who have been merely saying words, singing words, maybe with much joy and deep fervor, and our lives haven't been changed, I pray that we would repent. And for those of us who have been comfortable in in road traditions, And our lives are not continuing to be changed. And our joy is not full. I pray that we would repent. And Father, for that believer who is growing, Lord, I pray that the encouragement of the Word is that we all have a part in the worship of our dear Savior. So God, would you work in our hearts do as you see fit. And Father, as we Sing our final song. May we worship you and may we praise you. And Lord, may we encourage others as we sing. But Lord, most of all, may you be glorified. You, indeed, are the word object of our worship. Which in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed.